Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Dispatch Podcast, episode 58. I'm your host, as always, Cameron English. Joined again by uh, two very sharp people with lots of opinions, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at ACSH, and Dr. Barbara Billauer, who is our resident legal scholar. Always nice to see the both of you. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Chuck? And um... Vertical, happy, getting ready for the uh, all the holiday. The holiday season is underway. Let's begin there. So... For all of us on a diet, it's going to be a tough month. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not going to work. Let me just say right now, that is not going to last. And I don't blame you because it shouldn't. If there's one time you shouldn't diet, it's during uh, the holiday season because mashed no potatoes, right? Right? I, I don't know. I think that's the most compelling argument I can put forward. Well, you but know, the only problem is I, I said there's usually a holiday and almost every day. We have a national Brussels sprout day coming up. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I can relate. I think we have asparagus day out here in California in the Central Valley. Yeah, exactly. And then, and in my age group, it's <laughs> take your parent, take your parent to work day. It's coming up too. <laughs> I, Cameron, I thought that in California they only celebrate fruits and nuts day. Yeah, yeah, not at all. We have we have a lot of fruits and nuts in California, but uh, any excuse we have to celebrate. Uh, asparagus or any kind of strange vegetable. It's just an excuse to eat ice cream, frankly, and to drink. But, uh, you know, we do what we can. But no one's here to talk about that. So let's jump into these stories. We've got two as usual, one by each of our of our scholars here. So the first one is uh, by uh, Dr. Barbara Billauer. It's called uh, World Without Oreos, Unintended Consequences of Wagovi and Ozempic. These, of course, are these... Um, I don't know, blockbuster drugs that are being used to treat obesity now. So, Barbara, let me read this uh, brief introduction, and then you can take it away here. So you write, the weight loss, the weight loss drugs, Wagovi and Ozempic, portend a massive impact on the obesity epidemic, in quotes. Users may even be able to get insurance coverage as the FDA just approved a third of, of drugs in this category, specifically for weight loss treatment, signaling greater coverage for all drugs in this class. Sounds promising, right? But alas, there are unintended consequences. Okay, so maybe set up the story for us and tell us what are these unintended consequences and should we be alarmed? Well, I think there are several unintended consequences. One is that until we're sure that the insurance will be available, we're really putting out there a drug that will have a select audience that is the wealthy, the wealthy and the famous and the people who are famous for being famous. And the second, of course, at least is this is what the investment industry claims. And I make no pretense of being an investment guru or expert is that they foresee that there will be less demand for some of our favorite goodies. And so they are downrating some of the stocks that we might think are really juicy or sweet and juicy. That's one. There's also a fear, and this is really, these are mostly investment fears, that some of the industries, medical, technical, that existed to address excess weight, like bariatric surgery, along with the technology or the hardware that's necessary for performance of these surgeries will not be utilized. And so the 
stock pundits are downrating those also. So the unintended consequences seem to fall into the financial aspects of what these drugs will do. I wonder, and this is a secondary consequence, if the psychological consequences have yet to be recognized. So I remember a Star Trek many years ago, the next generation Star Trek, where this woman came from another planet and she was paralyzed, but on this other planet, they didn't have gravity so she could fly around. And somebody told her, well, if you go to a planet, we can fix we can fix your problem, your handicap, uh, and you can come back to Earth. And she didn't want it fixed. She was so used to the world that she created, even though it was a secondary world or a less exciting world than Earth, she was happy there and she didn't want to stay. So the question is, if these drugs become widely available, and for whatever reason, people have made a life for themselves that's dependent on their identity of being someone on what's to call them HTH, healthier than he- uh, heavier than healthy, so we don't have any pejorative claims here, they may decide that they like this world that they have, this role that they have, this identity. They may decide they don't want to take the drugs, and will they be further stigmatized by either insurance companies, by their doctors, or by their social group? So that's the problem in a nutshell. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. There's a lot of interesting edges to that. Uh, before we get too deep, though, Chuck, why don't you break down briefly how these drugs work? So broadly, they're known as glucagon-like peptide one receptor agonists, which is a very right. sexy, very sexy category. But but what does that mean in in practice? Ultimately, it means it it delays emptying from the stomach and it affects. Uh, your hormone transit time as well as hormone levels basically making you have uh, earlier satiety and less hunger. So as a result, you eat less, you feel fuller sooner. So it's another reason why you eat less. And it's a very effective uh, means of weight reduction. If you look, you know, so in, in one sense, what Barbara's talking about is what, you know, is, is the disruption uh, of an industry by a, uh, a new a new force uh, in much the same way that bariatric surgery uh, disrupted all of the Weight Watcher programs and all the programs like that. Um, the GLP ones are disrupting uh, the the weight loss world once again because this is the this is a medication whether you get the injection or, or in the future year or two, uh, the possibility of a pill that has the same efficacy as bariatric surgery. And bariatric surgery was far and away the most effective uh, weight loss regimen that we've come up with. So again, that's why you're seeing a, a, a disruption because you know, to be quite fair, even though I'm a surgeon, uh, most people would prefer a shot or a pill over an operation. Why that is, I don't know, but that's the way they are. And that that's really driven um, the GLP acceptance quite a bit. It, 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 in Barbara's article, she talks about the fact that Johnson & Johnson, which is heavily involved in the devices involved in bariatric surgery, uh, is thinking that they're going to be seeing um, uh, 
sales drop because there's not going to be as much of a demand uh, for that surgery down the line. And I, and I, and I think that that's correct. You, you're also going to see it, I think, um, uh, in the surgical robots. Surgical robots, intuitive surgical systems, those robots cost about a million dollars each. And as a result, you need to do a bunch of operations to cover the cost uh, of that machine. Um, and it's taken a long time to develop um, a group of operations uh, that are done more promptly, quickly, and well with the robots over uh, laparoscopic surgery. It's taken you know, 15, 20 years for that group of surgeries to develop, and bariatric surgery is far and away one of the big ones uh, in, in terms of that because uh, of the sheer size of these people doing the surgery robotically uh, results in far less in the way of complications than a condition, uh, what would be a traditional laparoscopic approach. Well, maybe then this is a good unintended consequence because I saw just this morning that a hospital in New York has been actively promoting bariatric surgery, even in Rikers Island, which is the prison island. Uh, they staged a fashion show and the people who've had the surgery got up and said how wonderful their life has been. So clearly there's been a perhaps excessive excessive push for these surgeries to justify these expenses or to break even. That's, a, that's an interesting piece because they're talking about Bellevue Hospital, which is a city hospital, and it is serving a largely um, marginalized population within the city. And they have found a way uh, to bring significant revenue into the system. And that, I think, was a, a large part of the gist of that article. Um, mm. And there were some questions about whether they were bending the rules uh, about how this uh, surgery is offered. And it's interesting because for a long time, there were a lot of insurance hurdles to getting bariatric surgery. And uh, people had to go for six months to a year uh, through various uh, testing and dietary requirements um, to qualify, to be qualified by the insurance company to pay for their surgery. And now that there's a pill available, uh, I think we may see that some of the um, criteria or guardrails, depending on your point of view, uh, for bariatric surgery will come tumbling down. One of the things that I have seen, and I, this may not have actually tipped the can you see it scale yet is at least in the women who are taking it and who are motivated by appearance they don't seem to be able to stop so i'm watching some of some of the royals and i knew from watching them a couple two years two three years ago they're losing weight too quickly for this to be done normally and i even before the whole Ruaha was unleashed. I had a feeling, like, okay, these are privileged people. They have some magic elixir because they were just losing weight too fast. And now I'm watching them and they are really too thin. And I have seen reports that people who've taken the drug just either can't stop or the, the effects keep going on and they may be overdoing it because there's no stop mechanism. Well, there's, it, it appears to be the case that you can it, once you stop the drugs, your your hormonal milieu goes back to normal. You know that's that's a, a difference from surgery because once the surgery is done, 
you know, those surgical changes are relatively permanent. Uh, so that that that's a, a, a continuing problem. You're going to have to be taking the medication forever. So that's that's a, a problem there. The other thing that's interesting that hasn't been mentioned at all is that there's a lot of um, other downstream medical care associated with this, especially uh, for the aesthetic surgeons, because having then lost 70 or 80 pounds does not mean that all that excess skin and tissue that was there shrinks and disappears. Yes, so, there, so body sculpting in any of its many forms is part and parcel uh, of a lot of uh, the weight reduction program. So we're going to see some changes downstream uh, and uh, in, there too. And they're calling it Ozempic, Ozempic butt and Ozempic face because of the yes. sagging. Uh, but, the, but the interesting fact is while these doer drugs might be covered by insurance, the plastic surgery or the body sculpting won't. And so you're going to have a lot of super skin skinny people with flab hang, hanging off various parts of their anatomy, and they'll be very unhappy about that. So the psychologists and the psychiatrists will probably get a different cadre or different cohort of patients, but they're these are people who are taking the drugs because they were unhappy what they look like, and they'll still be unhappy with what they look like for a different reason. And so it's not a panacea. They're not a panacea for making you feel good about how you look. No, but, you know, and but I think that the, the other shift you see is that they're, they're doing a lot of tests now showing that these drugs are beneficial to your cardiac health. And they have not completely teased out whether this is purely uh, a weight-related uh, benefit or whether there's something else going on. And, and that's going to be the way in uh, for a lot of people uh, in, in terms of insurance coverage. If you can demonstrate in some way that you can't lose the weight any other way, then this is something that may have an appreciable effect on improving uh, or lowering your cardiac risk. And that's going to be that's going to be a, a frontier that the insurance companies are going to have to uh, face and, and ultimately address. So I don't think that the you can start seeing some of the papers beginning to come out, but the definitive ones that are going to make the the case that uh, using these drugs improves your uh, survival and lifestyle is yet to be shown. The the other thing here. Uh, that I want to examine briefly before we move on is the cultural aspect of this. We've been sort of dancing around it, and Barbara mentioned it earlier. Uh, and in the story, you point out that uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, I guess we can call the godmother of daytime talk shows. <laughs> and and, and right? you saw how Oprah looked, what, just yesterday? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, noticeably different. So, noticeably different. And, and, not noticeably, and noticeably different than a month ago. She had a, I, I just happened to catch her inaugural. Ozempic interview where she had people, psychologists, talking about people need the drug because they cannot otherwise manage their weight. She had the president weight watchers on doing a mea culpa. You know, we need we didn't recognize that some of this is medical. And she looked a lot thinner then, but she didn't look anywhere near as good as she looked a few days ago. So these drugs seem to have an accelerating spiral. They get they seem, at least in watching it to work better the longer you take it, or the people get skinnier the longer they take it. So you point out, <laughs> in, the, you point out in the story 
um, she's sort of taken on this obesity guru um, identity. And she's talking about how obesity is indeed a disease, as we're starting to see, because this uh, presumably because the drugs work so well. Um, and of course, I've I've taken exception to that in in the <laughs> past, as Barbara alludes to in the story. So I'm I'm wondering. I guess we don't have to settle that issue, but I'm wondering from both of you, um, how how are these drugs going to impact the way society looks at obesity? Well, what you know, I was thinking about this this morning because I know this is one of your soapboxes, Cameron, <laughs> um, and and you've gotten some pushback on it. I think what we have to be mindful of is not to make judgments based on our own personal experience. Because I, too, when I was younger, was kind of chunky and was shamed. And my parents tried nicely to encourage me to lose weight. But it wasn't until my next door neighbor said to me after he hadn't seen me for a while, this is the, this is the, the father of children I babysat for boy, Barbara, you got fat. <laughs> when he said that, that's when I went on the diet. And I did. And I, and I, I, I boy, it worked. Uh, my parents were very gentle, but um, when, when um, Mr. G said it, 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 and I worked and I lost the weight, but I was eight, 17, 18 years old. That's, it, it might be easier to, to lose weight when you're 17 and 18 and you don't have stresses, especially if you live in a socioeconomic climate where you can afford healthier foods, and you can, which are, happen to be more expensive than some of the non-healthier foods, as opposed to when you're 50 or 60 or 70 and you have arthritis and it's hard to move or you have COPD and it's hard to breathe or you're menopausal and you just, you know, the curse of the age. So it might be more easy for us or easier for a younger person to tap into the willpower, the fierce willpower of youth that doesn't exist when you have stresses, which also cause weight, the cortisol effect on weight is also recognized that you do have when you're older. And so there are, I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are multiple causes, many of which are medical, and they're different medical causes. Some could be stress, some could be metabolic, some could be hormonal, like, like diabetes or, or menopause. And there may be different ways to address all of them. I'm not sure that we, okay, it's too early to know whether there are long-range side effects from the drugs. Every drug has side effects. And here's another cause of, of weight gain. Some of the drugs that we're taking today, Lyrica, causes weight gain. So there are drug-related weight gains that you have no control over. You can, I mean, you can stop taking it, and then you're in agony from whatever nerve damage you have. So there are causes for weight gain that have no other way to address other than medically or, or bariatric surgery or surgery. Well, and I, mean, we recognize that. I, I think that, well, a, a different point. I think that it's unclear whether these drugs will, will move the culture um, and change the aesthetics uh, as quickly as we think. It may provide uh, different, you know, to my mindset, different excuses for why it's one situation or another, but I, I, I think that it's going to take a lot more to get us back to a culture where the uh, Rubenesque women were the most appreciated <laughs> versus, uh, 
you know, and, and you, you know, you obviously we see that a lot more in the media and the advertising that they're using a, a far greater range of body types uh, than they've used in the past. Now, whether I, you know, but that kind of cultural change takes a generation. And and the the Rubenesque woman was also symbolic of the wealthier woman who could afford to eat. Women who were fat, or by today's standards were considered more beautiful because that equated to wealthy. They could afford food. Well, yeah. It's a, you, you, ultimately, the, the aesthetic is to to look for that wealthy, healthy person. That's why, you know, we, you know, at one point it was better to be pale because you didn't have to go outside and work, you know, whereas now tan is the, the way to go because it means you don't have to be working. You can be out, you know, capturing all the vitamin D in, in the universe along with the ultraviolet rays. <laughs> melanoma <laughs> indicator of your success in life um okay well let, let's leave it there it sounds again as always like uh, this is going to be uh possibly beneficial to a lot of people and it's also gonna risk creating a massive uh culture war <laughs> like uh, like so many things in our lives today so uh, we'll revisit this as chuck mentioned there's going to be uh you know additional research coming out probably more clinical studies and you know, more more post-marketing surveillance kind of stuff. So we'll revisit this. Uh, in the meantime, though, let's move on to uh, Dr. Dinnerstein's piece here. It's called, It's Not Halloween, Why Wear a Mask? And this is a pretty interesting study, Chuck, that you're talking about here. So here's the introduction. You say, this is a bit of a rhetorical question. It's based on the simple fact that the percentages of the population wearing a mask in public in July 2022 uh, were 86% in Japan, 43 in the U.S., 21 in the U.K., five in Denmark. Japan was not alone among the Asian nations, all wearing masks in 80% or greater range. Why might that be? Okay, Dr. Dinnerstein, why might that be? Well, the common narrative is that the Asian people are much more collectively based than we are. We are the, the Western people have a more individual, rugged approach to life. And the the greater uh, use of masks among uh, Asian populations is attributable to that. So that was really one of the questions that the uh, researchers wanted to look at. And in fact, um, while collective behavior is important, there was really no discernible difference in terms of the collective uh, feelings between Western countries and Asian countries. They did find that um, people uh, believe that the mass reduced the severity of illness that provided protection and prevention. And um, it was very much under the, the idea of doing everything that one could do to prevent infection. So there was a, there was a, there was a self-serving component of that. What I found the most interesting was that the behavior of people in one surrounding was more uh, in the behavior of people in one's surroundings was the most effective uh, measure of how people acted. So that if everybody around you was wearing a mask, it was far easier for you to put on a mask and, and, and get about your day. Uh, so we're talking about social norms. Uh, and Bringing that back home, it's clear that there are several social norms now uh, in the country, and that I think in a lot of ways people respond to what their family 
and peers are doing. It's really very much a matter of kith and kin uh, in in terms of how we come down uh, in terms of masking. What I I find interesting now is that a lot of people that didn't wear masks back in the height of the pandemic are wearing masks now. I don't know why that might be, but that does seem to be the case. What, one of the other variables you mentioned, and maybe this uh, influences the the broader uh, you know cultural norms you're talking about, but you say that risk tolerance is an important factor in these kind of decisions. And I know you've mentioned that in previous uh, writing that you've done. Um, so talk about that. I mean, at least individually or people in groups are assessing their risk of getting really sick, for example, and then they're going, okay, based on this, I'm going to wear a mask. Yeah. And so you know, I, I think that everybody does some kind of uh, in, internal calculus of, uh, of what their risk is. And based upon that uh, decides on what preventative or protective measures they could take. Uh, it, it, certainly if you look back at the pandemic, uh, Early on in the pandemic, when it was taking out everybody over age 65, uh, there was a lot of chatter among my people <laughs> about the best thing to do. And, and as, a, as I mentioned before, the seniors in Florida um, stopped moving around and started to shelter in place weeks before the, the government in Florida even made that as a suggestion. They had done their own calculus and decided that this was uh, something that was bad and they were going to avoid it. And so in that sense, it does make sense for people that were not exposed um, to the rapid uh, intensification of the pandemic early on to say, well, what are they talking about? Nobody around me is sick. So why am I going out of my way to do anything? And in a, in a lot of ways, uh, that begins to break down um, geographically in the United States and geographically tends to break down politically in the United States and may explain some of the underlying um, divisiveness that we feel far more than a a case of um, my rights versus public health rights, something like that. It seems to me, Chuck, what you're saying is, is the decision to wear a mask is in large measure due to a subjective assessment of fear. And that would track on the fact that in SARS-1, which I started studying then, China, again, but also Asia was the first places where SARS-1 made landfall. It, It really affected Asia, Vietnam, Japan, Taiwan, much before it affected the Western Hemisphere, the U.S. had a travel locked travel advisory, so it really didn't affect the U.S. It did small pockets of Chinatown in Canada. And at that point, there was no vaccine. And even though the case fatality theoretically or numerically was lower, it was only 10%, it was 10% of a diagnosis that today would be the most severe cases of the disease. In order to be diagnosed as having SARS-1, this was before PCR really got its heyday, you pretty much had to have an X-ray diagnosis of pneumonia plus a history of exposure. You'd be pretty certain. So you had the most severe cases, and of the most severe cases, you had a 10%. And these people, and I have pictures, I'm going to send, I I found some, I'll send them to you, Chuck, of uh, people wearing masks 
and the newspaper catching them and there was a whole sea of umbrellas and all you saw was a mask or don't forget to wear your mask in a confessional. And, uh, masking became synonymous with the way of life then. And it's almost like this reminds me of a Jungian fear. These people lived through the worst of the times that preceded this. The disease has the same name. And so they may be more afraid than we are, plus the fact that upping the fear of the disease is prevalent to the culture. And it is the antidote to the anti-vaxxers who are minimizing the fear of the disease. I think the, your fear is a great motivator. Fear, fear drives everything. The problem, I think, with fear is that um, it's very difficult to unwind once you wind them up. And, and that's part of the problem that we we've had. Public health people couldn't talk, couldn't walk back some of their messaging uh, that was a little hyperbolic uh, without looking like complete idiots. So they chose just to be complete idiots. Um, but but that piece aside, I think now the other thing, when you talk about culture, culture is kind of a large uh, thing. It includes a lot of things. And what I'm thinking is that when you're talking about an infectious disease, and you're talking about Asia, you're talking about very urban, dense populations. And that population for an infectious disease, it will roll through that population far more quickly than it's going to roll through Montana. And I, and I, and I think that the rapidity uh, of the disease's presence is a great component to fear when all of a sudden four or five people around you, if you can think back to earlier pandemic, all are coming down with this. That's a far greater driver uh, uh, of concern than anything that is being said to me on the television. And so it, it, so it, it's an interestingly entangled issue. And what I, what I thought was, fascinating about it was that there are um, probably the best way to say that there are cultural uh, components to how we uh, we assess things but bottom line is that a lot of our assessment comes from looking around and seeing what everyone around us is doing and uh, collaborating with them not necessarily collaborating with the county uh, 30 miles away. A lot, of, uh, a lot of, a lot of interesting word choices uh, this time around. So we got Rubenesque, <laughs> we got collaborating, <laughs> just waiting for someone to say synergy now, and then we'll be all set for the, well, there is, there's, there's that synergy between. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, that's going to do it for us. Um, I read both of these stories. There's a lot of stuff that we've only touched on. And like I said, we'll we'll revisit this. But but Chuck's article in particular, it's a lot of details in the article that came out that we're just not going to have time to cover. But it's worth reading and at least appreciating what motivates people to do stuff, right? Especially when it comes to public health interventions. And hopefully, there's some people in public health who read this paper and will uh, contemplate its uh, conclusions before. Hopefully, it never happens again in our lifetimes. But before we hit another pandemic, so we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll be back next week for episode fifty nine follow us on social media until then the organization is at acsh org uh you can follow me at cam j english uh my colleagues here are a bit wiser and uh 
tend to abstain from social media. So just go to acsh.org. You can get both of their archives. Barbara has a preprint archive with uh, much more in-depth articles that are worth your time if uh, she writes something that you're uh, intrigued by. So check all that out, and we will see you next week. <laughs>